case. Hope not hates are basically controlling Britain. Hope not hate. An alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. These backward, these backward thinking, virtue, sick, virtue signaling, fake news crate. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Hope Not Hate podcast. I'm Matthew McGregor, the campaign's director here at Hope Not Hate. In November, my colleagues Afrida Chowdhury and Joe Cox recorded a series of webinars with the Biden 2020 digital team. Our supporters and members got to hear direct from some of the staff who took on and defeated Donald Trump despite the inbuilt advantages that presidents have. I know I don't sound it, but I'm a US citizen as well as being British, and I worked on the 2012 presidential campaign. This election was much more important than that one. In a moment, you'll hear the first of the webinars, but I wanted to take a second to talk about why Hope Not Hate cared so much about this election. In 2016, in Charlottesville, Virginia, the anti-fascist activist Heather Heyer was hit by a car and murdered by a Nazi activist. Subsequent investigations showed how he had posted some of his intent to commit violence on his social media page in the weeks leading up to the demonstration. Protesters, including the killer, marched under swastikas that day and had chanted things like, Jews will not replace us. It was a terrifying sight for people there and around the world. In the wake of the murder, with Heather's body yet to be laid to rest, Donald Trump referred to those fascist protesters as very fine people. Trump's defeat is a victory for anti-fascists the world over, and Hope Not Hate is happy to celebrate it. While we celebrate, we can also learn. That's why in the days after the election result, we arranged to hear from Biden staff about how they did it. The first session you're about to hear focuses on how the Biden team fought back against the wave of disinformation that they faced. From my uh, left, where I can see um, Rob, uh, who is, he oversaw a team of more than 300 by election days. Rob is also a veteran of the Democratic National Committee, worked for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign, and also for Beto O'Rourke during the primary. Uh, this will be really good news for some of my colleagues, I hope not hate. He's also strangely a fan of Norwich City Football Club. I'm not sure if we can, uh, we can flag that as true or false, like Twitter does nowadays. Uh, I can say that that is true. I actually, I, hold on one sec, I have, uh, I just found it this morning, I have my Norwich hat right here. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, and that I, is because I, of one Matthew McGregor who uh, brought me to care over. I know, I guess Gemma there as well who's like, who's <laughs> cheering. Um, and also, the next person I want to introduce is Rebecca Rinkovich. Please tell me if I'm pronouncing your names wrong. Uh, who was the director of digital rapid response for the Biden for president campaign and was formerly the director for political programs for Bully Pulpit Interactive. Um, on the Biden campaign, uh, Becca was closely involved in running the Malarkey factory, which we can not wait, can wait to hear more about. We can't wait to hear, hear more about this. Uh, and finally, we have Timothy Dorigan, who, who is the security analyst at the Democratic National Committee. Uh, he previously worked for the party's campaign arm for the U.S. House of Representatives and for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. Lastly, um, we are also joined by my colleague, uh, Dr. Joe Mulhall, who is the senior researcher at Hope Not Hate. So welcome, everyone, and welcome, everyone who is joining in. If you're joining in late, just uh, I'm just letting you know, we have a Q&A at the end that you, where you can ask questions. Please keep those questions short because I know there's going to be tons of them. Um, so yeah, I, I just wanted to start off 
um, by asking Rob, um, could you speak more about like the challenges that you had and uh, what the campaigns um, faced and what strategy that you used? Yeah, so I'll start, uh, and but um, but I, I want uh, Tim and, and Becca to really dive in. First of all, thank you all um, to uh, Hope Not Hate for for having us and um, for all the work you do. And, and hello to everybody. I see some uh, some friends in the chat, uh, and so I'm excited to uh, to be here with all of you. Yeah, I mean, I think we should just dive in. I uh, like uh, uh, you know was sort of in this position to be digital director for the campaign. I was. I was um, but as, as, as we sort of mentioned, I was on the Clinton campaign in 2016. And if you recall, we did not win, uh, we lost. Uh, and um, one of the things that, that you know, was a factor in that was um, you know, vast sort of misinformation uh, spread in, in, in sort of right-wing corners of the internet. And, uh, and that misinformation sort of spread over into the mainstream and those narratives ended up having a real effect on on the outcome um, of the election this stuff is is not just sort of you know right-wing you know lies about how to vote and things like that it's, it's actually sort of racist um uh, uh you know creative and content um that is aimed at actually uh, prevent like sort of suppressing people's willingness to vote uh and uh and also persuading people that you know uh in, in the way that a uh, you know, a negative ad might, uh, you know, as we have here. Uh, and so um, I, I think like we came into this election, uh, you know, over the last four years, um, the sort of Democratic Party and, and, and sort of the center left apparatus thinking about, you know, how do we um, uh, uh, start to approach this problem because it's a it's a problem that you know is it really rests on the platforms to solve right at the end of the day um, it's a problem that is a Facebook problem and a YouTube problem and a Twitter problem um, and there's only so much that a campaign can do um, you know one of the smartest things that I think the the party did itself uh, was over the last uh, couple of years they actually invested in a team uh, that Tim runs and, and you'll hear from Tim um, to detect and and track. Uh, misinformation and misinformation um, narratives in the sort of various corners of the internet, uh, and then actually go out and, and flag it to platforms um, as, as a violation of their policy. Uh, and so um, that work, I mean, the, the, the stuff that, that they did was a critical asset. I was on a, you know, a primary campaign before I came to the Biden campaign. Uh, and, uh, you know, as we were, were trying to win the nomination, and they were a critical asset to every single primary campaign. You know, Tim actually and I met uh, when I was doing Beto O'Rourke's campaign because he was flagging misinformation about Beto O'Rourke just as much as he was, um, you know, Amy Klobuchar and, and the president-elect at the time. Um, and so, you know, Tim will talk about the work that they did, but that piece of infrastructure, I think, was one of the more important decisions that um, was made in, in sort of the party space over the last um, couple of years. Um, you know, we at the campaign cared a lot about this work and, and reports that Tim did went to the literal highest levels of, of the campaign. Um, but we brought Becca on to sort of think through, okay, now that we have these misinformation narratives, what do we actually do? Um, <laughs> like uh, uh, it, is, it is one thing to know 
that um, there is a lot of conversation online about corruption or, or you know, mental fitness or, or any of these things, um, or, or um, you know, the vice president's record on the crime bill, um, which you know, was sort of a controversial uh, piece of legislation in, in the early 90s. Um, but it was, it was another to go, okay, now, now what? And so you know, we spent a lot of time thinking through how do we take um, what uh, Tim was surfacing with his team and how do we actually get a sense of impact, right? Is it actually like really, does it actually matter? Because for us, where we just care about electoral outcomes, um, if something is, is, is just uh, staying in a right-wing bubble, um, uh, and not breaking out and not keeping people or, or turning people off from voting, then, you know, should we, it's not necessarily worth our campaign's time to lift up to uh, our campaign's time to uh, invest in ameliorating. Um, so um, we actually took this up in Tim surface and put it into polling research and found um, which pockets of the electorate found the stuff credible. And then which of the people who found it credible are, were voters that we actually needed. Uh, and, and needed to communicate with um, as, a, as a sort of reactive measure. And then there were all kinds of interventions that we did via paid digital and, and also um, influencers and, and people with large social followings to sort of push it back. The idea being that, you know, the solution is never going to be like fact check this, that, or the other. The solution is, is going to be sort of treating people's um, uh, finding the thing persuasive on an individual level um, credibly, and then just sort of hitting them with counter messages that would persuade them back and persuade them away. And so um, that was sort of the core of the program. It was, it was sort of a, a system um, by, which, by which we did all of those things. Um, and, you know, it was, this, this was funded by a bucket of money for experiments that we were running, which we called the Malarkey Factory, but um, this was sort of one program thereof. Um, and so, um, you know, we faced these challenges. Now, at the end of the day, I'm not sitting here saying that we solved the problem of misinformation in the United States. Uh, that is far from over. Uh, uh, this is this is a these were protective measures that the campaign could take against itself. The real answer is going to have to be um, you know the longer term work of of what platforms do to to mitigate that. And Tim can kind of speak to it. But um, you know these were things the campaign did to uh, be proactive and be you know on on offense. Um, when it came to those things. So, um, you know, I think, uh, I think uh, we're still getting the sort of full results of, of, of what the work sort of led to, but, um, you know, I think it was a critically important part um, of our program. Thank you, Rob. Um, there's, a, um, there's a question that came up here on the, in the chat that might be um, quite relevant to it. And it's that it's asking about if there was any tools that were missing uh, when, uh, when working with the strategy or what, if there was any gap that you thought about. Oh, sorry, can you say that again? In your strategy, would, is there any like tools that you thought were missing um, when talking about it? Um, I think, to, so we, I think we had a pretty good set of, of, of tools. I'm actually kind of curious to hear what, um, Tim and Becca kind of thought about what the missing, what the missing links are. Yeah. In terms of the, you know, landscaping of social media and, um, threat detection, understanding kind of what the conversation was, um, we certainly would have loved to have more data. Um, certain social media companies are, are more forthcoming with um, what's being said. 
um, than others. Um, I think our visibility into places like Instagram, which is actually a fairly large um, political conversation um, was pretty limited. So, so things like that, I, th I think would have been helpful, but we're limited by, you know, the terms of service uh, of the social media companies themselves and, and kind of what we can see. Perfect, thank you. Um, I want to move on to uh, Rebecca. Thank you so much, Rob, for explaining that. Um, I know you work a lot with like integrating traditional and digital research. Um, could you speak more about that? Yes. Um, so really at the core of this program was taking the best of digital and social listening and the best of traditional research to understand the playing field and what the most impactful and effective remediation we could do was. Um, as Rob mentioned, the DNC had made a huge investment in social listening and disinformation tracking over the last four years. And so what we did was we built off of that infrastructure um, using their inputs and their tracking of the top narratives and the top hits um, based on mentions and engagement, and then putting that into weekly polling, um, so quantitative polling to get us a good sense of the different cohorts and our key audiences that were being impacted by each narrative um, and what impact that was having on attitudes towards our candidate and our opposition, but actually on vote choice. So really grounding all of our decision making in what was going to impact the eventual outcome of the election. Um, so that was one piece of, of sort of our traditional uh, research operation. The other piece was focus groups. Um, so in addition to understanding the mechanics and the dynamics of the race and how disinformation was having impact, also understanding what messages can counteract that was really core to our research. Um, the outcome of those, those two sort of bodies of work um, we use to inform an, an always-on digital remediation campaign. Um, so in that vein too, sort of taking the best of both worlds, um, we targeted folks based on um, online behavioral cues, building out personas based on um, the type of content they were consuming, what they were searching, the kinds of websites they were visiting so that we could um, target folks in real time um, as they were exposed to that disinformation um, and have a very quick turn response. We also worked to inoculate those groups that we were seeing um, be particularly impacted in polling. So taking a look at the different cohorts that were most susceptible to each narrative and, and standing up um, that those countermeasures um, targeting those demographics. Um, the combination of, and, and then of course, across both of those efforts, we um, regularly measured our impact and got a better understanding of what messages were working and um, the, the impact we were having on real world metrics like attitudes towards our candidates and um, vote choice. Um, a few things that we learned, uh, and I'm sure we'll, we'll dig into this even more, um, but at a very high level, we found that the volume of mentions doesn't necessarily translate to impact on um, vote choice or attitude shifts. A great example of this was the Hunter Biden narrative, which we saw um, blow up in, in the weeks leading up to the election. Um, however, we didn't find that that translated to the outcomes we were concerned about being 
change in vote choice or demotivation of our base. Um, we were really focused on both the folks that were still deciding and those who are with us but might not turn out. Um, so our sort of integrated research and social media operation helped us decide that that was not going to be a priority narrative for, for the campaign to engage in. Um, we also found, and I think this is sort of the first thing you learn in, in comms 101, but um, not to treat the hit, to, to treat the wound. Um, so by that, I mean, we saw a huge amount of volume and a lot of impact um, on narratives like um, Joe Biden was being manipulated by the radical left and disinformation around his mental acuity. Um, but what we found through our research, both qualitative and quantitative, was that the, the core of that hit and, and the reason why it was catching on with folks was that it, um, it hit his strength as a leader. Um, and so you'll see in our countermeasures that the, the content we put forth um, doesn't directly address those things. We're not raising the hit to combat it, but rather just reinforce um, truths about Joe Biden and, and his record and, and his policies. Um, which brings me to another thing that we learned, which was that um, really raw, authentic, platform-specific, social-friendly content was the thing that broke through with people, um, especially for folks who are exposed to disinformation. We found that they knew a lot of what they were seeing was um, not accurate. And, and they would go so, as so far as to say that they knew it was doctored, but it raised doubts for them. So we found, especially in counting, countering disinformation, it was important that we had this very authentic content that, that um, we responded with. And we're lucky to have um, a candidate who um, had a lot of that sort of thing and an incredible content team um, that was able to produce it. Um, and then just a, a couple notes on sort of our eventual top line impact. We found over the course of our campaign in tracking with our um, traditional research and in-flight um, ads measurement that um, the risk and, and the hit concern around mental acuity in, in particular went down by eight points over the course of our campaign. Um, and in looking at the number of folks who moved in vote choice, um, we saw about 200K folks um, shore up their votes for the president-elect based on the ads that we served in our campaign. Um, so a very quick and dirty high-level look at our program, but happy, happy to dig in more. Thank you so much, Becca. Um, there was a question uh, posed. I think it's good to take it now as we're, as we're on it. Um, posed by um, Asaf, who was asking if you could elaborate on the tools and platform you use to monitor social media and the measures uh, measure impact among target audience. That is the perfect segue to Tim, who can dig in on the on the social media piece. I can speak to the impact work we did, which was um, polling that we ran through Bully Pulpit Interactive. Um, and a lot of in-flight measurement through them too, which happy to expand on. But I think folks are eager to hear about the social listening piece, which is really unique and Tim can speak to. Great, I will, I will jump in. Um, thanks for, for having me, um, appreciate the, the invitation. Um, I, I will talk about kind of our, our whole program, but actually um, the, the first piece is kind of the threat detection and how we were mapping out 
the internet understanding kind of the conversation as it pertained to the candidates and issues um, that mattered. So uh, we took kind of a hybrid approach. So uh, we used um, some really inexpensive commercial tools um, because we don't have a lot of money here at the DNC, um, but um, some really cheap tools like uh, Bossumo uh, is a good one uh, and um, a tool called Trendalyzer out of Belgium, um, which is um, also pretty inexpensive, um, giving us a, a pretty good view into um, kind of what was happening on the major um, social media uh, sites. And then we also built uh, a, a little bit more of an elaborate in-house tool um, using a, a data scientist on our team that was pulling from various APIs, uh, um, plugging into kind of uh, open source data sets around like media, um, media quality, media bias, um, to try to understand kind of users or, or accounts, political persuasion. Um, and so we could say, you know, this certain attack, like uh, one of the ones that, that Becca mentioned, um, is coming from just folks on the political right. Um, it's not breaking through and, and being talked about elsewhere. Um, so we kind of put all those different data sets together into a, an internal tool um, to track kind of the major disinformation narratives. Um, levied at the at the at the candidates themselves um i hope that's a, a good uh overview and I'm happy to, to kind of dig in further if, if that's where, where folks are, are curious um kind of the second piece of uh our program at the dnc which which rob mentioned kind of started in in 2019 uh was around um countermeasures so kind of what are the things that that we can do about it when we know this stuff is happening um and for a long time until um you know rob and becca around there wasn't too much um, there are a couple of things that we could do uh, mainly uh, where there were um, terms of service service violations um, on social media those were cases where we could usually report um, that type of content or that type of behavior uh, whether it was you know coordinated inauthentic behavior or you know incitement or hate um, get that to the attention of the social media companies and they were generally pretty good at enforcing their rules um, you know, their rules obviously leave a lot to, to um, be desired, but um, where there were violations, they were generally good about enforcing. Um, the second piece was fact checking. Um, and while that is certainly not a great solution, um, it's one of, the, one of the tools that we could use to try to get, um, you know, the mainstream conversation moving away from certain disinformation and also get um, demotions on certain platforms like Facebook um, for kind of problematic content. Uh, and then the third piece is kind of what, what Rob and Becca talked to, which is a combination of, you know, digital organizing, inoculation, paid communications, um, you know, building our own megaphone and making sure that we were there first and most often with the people that we, we needed to win. So um, those are kind of the countermeasures. Third piece of our program was around education. Um, and so just teaching people how to approach misinformation. One of the things Becca said that was super important um, is, you know, we don't want to reinforce disinformation when we're rebutting it. Um, anytime we're saying, no, this thing is not true, we're saying the thing that's not true and that's going to reinforce it in people's minds. Um, and so we want to be really careful that we're saying the truth and we're doing it repeatedly um, because generally that's how our brains work. We tend to believe what we hear first and most often. Um, so certainly focus on educating um, not just kind of campaign operatives, but also trying to uh, push journalists to be more responsible in their own kind of coverage and, and framing decisions, push social media companies to be more responsible for the content on their sites, um, which again has um, 
a lot of room for improvement still. Uh, and um, also kind of just the general public, you know, what are some best practices, slowing down, thinking before you're sharing, trying to understand what um, folks on social media are trying to get you to do uh, when they appeal to your emotions and whatnot. Um, and then the last piece was, was specifically on um, social media policy. And so just having conversations with folks at those companies and saying, hey, you know, this is a problem. This is something that you should be addressing. Um, you know, I won't claim a lot of uh, success there, um, but I think at the margins, we were able to, to do uh, a little bit. So um, there's a, that's kind of a quick overview of, kind of our approach on the organic side. Um, but I think all of us are, are eager to, to take questions from you all and, and learn more. Perfect. Thanks. Um, before I move on to Joe, um, I think there's there's one question that's been posed a few times uh, that kind of speaks to what you said, Timothy, and it's about um, uh, it's about like echo chambers, um, social media that are an echo chamber for information that people want to hear. So how can individuals seek to influence others and pull them out of that conspiracy rabbit hole or disinformation rabbit hole? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Um, the answer is is empathy uh, and tenacity, uh, unfortunately, which are which are hard. Um, you know, anytime you are um, telling someone they're stupid for you know having the beliefs that they have, the reaction is not going to be um, agreeing with you and and being enlightened and deciding that they're all of a sudden going to have your beliefs. They'll have a defensive. Um, reaction to that. So um, being empathetic, um, you know, understanding that a lot of times these folks are victims of their own biases and, and social media companies manipulating their biases. So, um, you know, understanding where they're getting their information, um, trying to kind of push them towards more authoritative sources of information, I think is, is probably the most uh, helpful. One of the things we, we talked about in our um, trainings was, you know, if it's someone who's close to you, um, and if this is happening in, in like a social media um, environment, reaching out privately is actually um, probably the most effective um, because even, you know, a response, even an empathetic, super polite, hey, I don't think this is quite right response is going to trigger kind of, if not a defensive reaction from the sharer, um, you know, just embarrassment. Like no one wants to be you know, the victim of fake news and having have shared like fake news on social media. So um, extreme empathy and then patience, I think with people is the best approach, but, but it is hard because these are really powerful manipulative technologies that are, um, you know, playing on our biases and kind of pushing us to have our, you know, worldviews affirmed on a daily basis. So it's, it's an uphill climb. Um, and, you know, another reason why the terrain matters and, and what the social media companies uh, are doing kind of matters quite a bit. I think you're on mute. Sorry. Um, yes, I just wanted to ask if you could, um, I would love to hear if you could expand a little bit more on how you use digital organizing to counter this information. If you can expand a little bit more, like something that you might find be very unique to the campaign that you used that really worked uh, or anything that you might find, like, oh, I actually found this really interesting when I was working with it. That would be really cool to hear. Any one of you. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts and then I, I, I don't know, Tim, Becca, if you want to kind of go off of that. So uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I know there's a, a second panel we're doing on, on digital um, organizing. We had one of the largest um, digital organizing operations that, that sort of everyone stood up and, and that was not on, on, on my team, but um, 
uh, sort of a second digital organizing team. I think one of the things is we trained our digital organizers and, and our um, uh, our supporters on some of the same stuff that, that Tim uh, was just talking about. He, he you know, was running those trainings on, on how to have those one-to-one -one conversations with people and, and situations where you encounter misinformation. But the second thing is, is, is you know, we focused on um, sort of not just like how do we get our supporters to share stuff online, but on um, uh, influencers, so creators, um, you know, and, and, and we took a, a wide range of that. So that, that goes from a, a YouTube creator all the way down to a, um, you know, a pastor who has a Facebook following that is big in Florida, right? Um, and what we were finding in research were, you know, the messages that were um, and the con kinds of content that were um, sort of able to engage people. So for example, if um, uh, a, uh, if, if, you know, there was this sort of question about the, the, the president-elect's mental fitness, um, which was a, a sort of hit uh, against him that, um, you know, the polling found to be effective. Um, it was also very easy to ameliorate by showing content of the vice president speaking, right? Because that, that, that gives people proof without like showing them up. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and so, um, you know, we encourage those people to share content that did that thing uh, and um, uh, that, that helped disprove from a research perspective the thing without being in their face about it, saying fact check or if you believe this or wrong. Um, and so that was just like one sort of example. It came from figuring out ways to get people to share content at scale, whether they were supporters in our supporter ecosystem or um, just, you know, people with large audiences who we were sort of pitching, pitching to get to share stuff. Perfect. Thank you, Rob. Um, I want to move on to Joe. Um, and I want you to, I want to ask you if you could share some thoughts, um, your own thoughts. I know we, like we in Hopna, hey, we work up with a lot with disinformation in the UK and Europe. And yeah, I mean, what are your thoughts about uh, this, hearing from the three of them? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll speak very briefly because I'm sure people don't want to hear from me. They want to hear from you guys. So I'll speak very briefly on, on uh, some of the reflections actually on what you were saying, because unsurprisingly, a lot of what you're saying sounds extremely familiar in, in the UK context. And, and some of it sounds very different. So it's really interesting. I mean, misinformation has become a really important bit of Hope Not Hate's work actually in the last few years. We've set up a new unit quite recently looking at conspiracy theories and misinformation because it's, uh, despite being an organization that looks at the far right and looks at hate groups, um, it's it's got broader than that and the problems that we face are much bigger. And we do, uh, it's interesting, a few of the things you mentioned are similar to some of the things we're doing in terms of we track on a daily basis using kind of software, these different types of misinformation and their effect, but also do polling off the back of that to try and find out how much uh, like traction the misinformation is getting in broader society and then trying to find you know, ways to engage with counter narrative work but the i guess in one sense in many ways like all things the british version seems to be somewhat smaller than the american one uh, and when we look at the scale of the misinformation and disinformation that you guys are dealing with in some ways um it makes my eyes water <clears throat> although of course we have seen similar sorts of trends here i mean lots of research is being done still about misinformation around the brexit campaign for example um, uh, and that ranged from the outright fabrications through to the just incorrect, uh, and some of which I think uh, probably did have a large impact on the Brexit vote. And it was really interesting, you mentioned at the beginning, uh, Rob, about how there's a crossover with the right wing and there's a crossover with the far right and a lot of this is because a lot of the, the discussion in society is often about secret Russian farms doing this, that and the other, whereas actually a huge amount of the misinformation we encounter that has a damaging effect in the UK is from domestic individuals creating content on social media here in the UK. Um, 
uh, from a right wing or far right perspective rather than necessarily some sort of conscious uh, intervention. But then I guess that's somewhat different around elections. Um, one of the differences I thought was really interesting is, 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 of course, you were doing it within an election uh, and much of the work that we do around this misinformation is outside of elections and it's much broader in the sense it's about the effect of misinformation on societal positions or societal norms. And so it's broader than a specific candidate or a specific election and it's, it's, it's much broader, it's about uh, attitudes in society. And we've seen this year has actually been really, really troubling for Hope Not Hate, looking at how misinformation around things like COVID uh, 19 and some of the uh, and how actually a lot of the stuff that we've been monitoring online has spilled onto the streets in the UK. One of the big things for us is, is not necessarily just how um, people might vote in an election, but for us, of course, uh, it was really interesting. I think Tim, you said, or maybe it was Becca saying that you're really interested in it when it breaks through, when it's going to have an effect on people's voting patterns or it's going to affect a constituency in an election. We have that as well, of course, but also. Being an anti-hate organisation, for us sometimes misinformation spread amongst a small but very active or violent group is, is, is our concern. Even though it won't have an effect on society, someone might do something terrible. They might attack a mosque, they might attack a synagogue. So that was something that I thought was something slightly different. And then, Becca, you mentioned authentic content, uh, which I thought was fascinating, because one of the huge things that I completely agree with what you said is, it's not necessarily sometimes about people believing this misinformation it's about them just stopping believing anything and this is one of the troubles and maybe i have some questions later about that because it's one of the things we're really struggling with which is uh, it's not necessarily that individuals believe every bit of misinformation they're seeing on social media it's that they just stop believing official narratives which becomes really really problematic for us um and then timothy yeah we used to it was about breaking through and i thought that was interesting uh, and um, I wonder if as that, that will shift somewhat once you're then kind of in power or Biden is in power, that'll be interesting to see if it's not just about the voting constituencies, it's going to be a, a slightly broader. So one of the things I guess I hope not hate are looking at really closely is, is how do we counteract this? And that's why it's really interesting hearing some of your thoughts. And I mean, we're doing a few things. Some of it is basically, as you say, monitoring. Some of it is counter narrative work. And then the other bit for us is deplatforming, which has been really important here in the UK. And I hope not hate got David Icke deplatform, which was a major spreader of kind of COVID misinformation here in the UK. And then the other side is education. And then something that we're quite lucky with in the UK is all this current discussion about legislation in the United Kingdom, which we've just put out a report called A Better Web with our recommendations for what legislation should look like. But while the government's dragging its heels a little bit, it's coming down the pipeline. So that's really exciting for us is uh, dealing with it and this i guess uh, brings me on to two questions i don't know who's best to um i will open it up in a second but i want to kind of abuse my position and grab questions because i have i have some one is basically we engage with platforms we engage with all the major platforms or any of the platforms we can we can talk to and um we, we are critical uh, but uh, as, as friendly as is necessary or possible obviously you would have been working really closely i presume with most of the major platforms through this campaign we've noticed here in europe that um Different platforms have very different levels of interaction, uh, are hugely different in terms of how good they are, how engaged they are. So I would love to hear which platforms you thought were good, which ones you thought were bad. And I don't know if you're allowed to name and shame, but we'd love to know <laughs> which ones you thought were especially problematic, because I'd be fascinated to see if they're the same here. And then the other question, again, I don't know who, who wants to jump in on it, would be um, one of the big problems I think we're facing with the misinformation in the UK is not just the role that fabricated or misinformation is playing, but selective truth or selective uh, propaganda, if you will. A lot of the groups that we would monitor, for example, the vast majority of the content in their groups, um, say it's an anti-Muslim movement, is true. 
it's not that the story is fabricated it's just that the only thing that they post in that group is a thousand articles a week from about halal food all over the world and they create this perception that halal and islam is taking over the world and it's not that the stories are not true it's just that they are very selective in their choosing and i wonder if um, that's something that you had to come up with that goes slightly beyond just saying this is fabricated this is fact checked it's not true and how you deal with it when something is true but they they present it in a manner or in with a, a mass of it that it becomes untrue so there's the two questions. I don't know if, who might jump on, which is the best tech platforms, which is the worst, and how do you deal with uh, kind of true misinformation? That's not a paradox. Yeah, I can, I can jump in. Um, I, don't, I won't do uh, like uh, one, to, one to 10 best, um, but um, we do have a scorecard actually on our website, um, which rates um, some of the major social media companies on, um, a bunch of different metrics. Um, we have uh, little stars there, so you can see kind of um, how they are doing on the different um, measures. Um, I think generally um, we were impressed by um, a company called Snapchat. I I'm not sure how prevalent that is um, abroad, but um, Snapchat is actually quite good. Um, they have uh, learned the lessons, I think, of their peers. They're a newer company um, and kind of by design have had more control over the content that gets reach. Um, they employ humans. Um, it's, a, it's a novel concept uh, for social media companies, but they employ humans to, to fact check, um, especially on the, on the ad side. So um, they have kind of laid out a marker, I think, that others can, can learn from. So um, that's what I would say, I guess, um, on, the, on the social media side. Um, in terms of the, the propaganda aspect, I think that's, it's a huge problem. Um, you know, one of the things that Facebook has touted uh, is their fact-checking program, which is, you know, problematic and insufficient in a lot of ways. But, um, you know, the, the, the problem that you mentioned, Joe, is, is super important because even if the fact-checking was happening, you know, perfectly, there would still be the ability to deceive with you know, framing and um, with uh, coverage choices. So, so similar to, to the halal example you gave, um, in the US, there's a, a company called Mad World News. Um, and basically, they will take, you know, four and five year old, really heinous crimes, um, usually perpetrated against uh, women or children by, um, you know, people of color, uh, and they will circulate those and, and publish them over and over as if, you know, this was happening on a daily basis and they can kind of spread, you know, foment racism, encourage hate with truth, you know, even if it's presented in a misleading way. Um, you know, I mean, from my perspective, like, I think this comes down to distribution um, and quality of content. And one of the things that especially social media has been really hesitant to do is to say certain sources of news are more authoritative than others. They're higher quality than others. And so, you know, it, 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 to give a U.S. example, the New York Times, which people will call sometimes the, the paper of record, really authoritative source of information, and that site Mad World News are treated the same. They look the same on Facebook. And so, um, you know, if a, if a Mad World News clip is getting a lot of likes, Facebook is going to say, hey, this is good content, and they're going to push it out um, just the same as if, you know, the New York Times did that. And usually the New York Times is not going to get as many likes because the content they're putting out is factual. It's nuanced. Uh, you know, it's boring, um, but, but accurate. 
Um, and so, so there's kind of a natural preference for this type of clickbait, you know, inciting content. And so I think that's certainly a frontier where we need to go. Another example along the lines is, you know, what's been happening over the last couple of weeks here in the US where imperfections in the voting process, you know, misunderstandings of the voting process have been um, taken in you know small pieces and used to create this picture of systemic voter fraud, which does not exist. Um, but you know, two ballots were misplaced by a new worker in, in this county, and all of a sudden you put two or three of these very small examples together, and they can you know weaponize this these small examples and create this overall picture that the election was held you know illegitimately. So I think um, that's that's a really good. Um, place to put your finger on is something that really hasn't been addressed in a, in a good way yet. And on the second question, I would add, um, when you're looking for the counter messages or in cases where you have the resources for a counter count campaign, um, one of the positive things that has come out of um, the coverage and the attention drawn to disinformation and the issues it's posing to society is that it's sown seeds of doubt with people who are exposed to it. So as I mentioned before in our research, folks have started to point out and will um, flag for us that though a piece of disinformation has raised doubts for them, they recognize that it could be one and is likely doctored or that it's one proof point as part of a much broader narrative. What we found in our work trying to counter both of those sorts of disinformation is that once we give, um, when we provide a, a bigger picture, um, so in our case that meant outlining um, the vice president at the time's policy objectives, his record, his goals, his team, um, once we sort of gave that holistic picture and, and informed folks um, of, of really our objectives and our values, um, it assuaged them of those concerns. So that's, that's not going to work for the folks that are sort of at the farthest ends of the spectrum and um, are sharing that information. And, um, you know, that's really where the platform remediation is, is critically important. But um, for those in the middle who are still making up their minds um, and maybe just see it as a one-off and, and have doubts, um, that fuller picture and just authentic, accurate information uh, makes a world of difference. Thank you so much for um, those questions and Joe proposing uh, that question. Um, I'm gonna go, uh, go to the Q&A now. Bear with me, guys. There's a lot of tons of questions, and we might be jumping around with some um, some questions that have been asked before. So sorry if I have if I'm not taking your question uh, directly. Um, there's some questions that have been asked a few times, so I'm just gonna try to uh, get some themes in. But uh, the first question um, is actually it comes actually comes from uh, uh, Stephen Dowd, who is an MP. Um, He's asking when tackling right-wing conspiracies, whether it's, for example, Trump lies, QAnon, or anti-vax, what is the most effective uh, rebuttal technique every elected representative, candidate, team should invest time and energy in? And would you say that the same technique applies across all platforms, or does it always have to be platform-specific? Not sure who wants to take that question. 
I can give it a first crack and then Rob and Tim, you guys should jump in. Um, in addition to this direct to camera authentic um, content that I'm, I'm speaking to, the other thing that we found um, critically important was having a, um, a bunch of validators weigh in and, and lend their credibility to um, the case that we were making. So um, from a content perspective, that looked like um, news articles and publications that spanned the spectrum of um, ideological leaning. Um, and it looked like different campaign surrogates and supporters from military officials to ex-Republicans um, and to real people. Um, on the content side of things, that was very important and, and sort of showing that, um, having that show of force helped to reaffirm <laughs> our narrative to folks. Um, and then Rob, Rob mentioned earlier sort of that um, validation and those um, different voices isn't just in content, but it was also through our distribution channel. So in addition to pushing stuff um, through our own channels, um, having other um, organizations, partners, influencers, um, lend their, their voices as well, um, was very helpful. Um, and, and I could jump in here too. And, and let me just say, I, I think we're, um, you know, also very impressed by Steven's uh, work in this space and, and hope not hate as well. So thank you for, for all that you guys are doing as well, uh, on this front. Um, uh, honestly, in terms of the conspiracy theories, like you know, just to answer your question verbatim, like the best, and Joe mentioned this before, the, the, the most effective solution is deplatforming. Um, you know, the best way to prevent disinformation from reaching people is to not expose them to it in the first place. Um, obviously, that is um, a tool that um, the folks, the powers that be um, tend not to want to use, um, unfortunately. Uh, but that is certainly the most effective. Um, I, just to give an example, I guess, um, is the, the QAnon conspiracy theory, which originated uh, in the US, I, I understand has gone global, unfortunately. Um, you know, this is kind of a just really baseless conspiracy theory that was inspiring violent acts across the country. Um, ultimately, uh, the FBI in the US um, released a report saying that it was a kind of a violent uh, domestic terror threat. Um, which which finally pushed um, social media companies to to take responsible action. Um, so I mean, and 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 the the effect of that was a huge, massive reduction in kind of the prevalence and and the spreading of the conspiracy theory. So, uh, you know, that that might not be a helpful answer, but um, I think that's uh, honestly the the most effective um, uh, solution if 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 it's possible. Um, in lieu of that, I would agree with everything Becca said, which is kind of, you know, leverage um, trust sources, you know, influencers, um, media outlets that exist um, that people trust in to the extent that they trust in those and, and kind of creating a broad response. Thank you. I think it leads quite well to this question posed by Alex from Stop Funding Hate. Um, like advertisers, they fund platforms and publisher uh, promote and host this, this information. So 
they're asking, what do you think the role is for consumer movements such as sleeping giants and industry initiative, such as conscious advertising network in combating the spread of disinformation and hate online? And there's a few questions generally about how platforms and advertisements on like Facebook and other platforms um, have the, um, you need to use their initiative to spread disinformation hate online. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good question. Um, so much of the disinformation that we see in the US is um, profitable um, and it exists because there's a viable uh, business model for it, um, unfortunately. Um, and until that changes, you know, that's gonna continue. Um, I, Sleeping Giants and, and the Disinformation Index and um, yeah, I forget, sorry, the, the other groups you mentioned, Frida, but that they, they've done heroic work, um, honestly. Um, Breitbart was a massive force in American politics and um, sleeping giants just like screen capping articles and telling companies that their um, ads were showing up next to, you know, really racist, gross content um, was just super effective. Um, the companies had no idea that was happening and they, they pulled their ads and, and the, the revenue from, from Bright, for Breitbart kind of fell off a cliff. So um, I think, you know, generally, and this runs across the spectrum, not just social media, to the extent that we can get off of advertiser funded media generally um, is good. Um, but, you know, certainly in these, um, in these cases, um, you know, it's, it, it's, uh, you know, AdSense um, and, um, you know, Facebook and, and all these different companies kind of just driving traffic and revenue to sources that really shouldn't have a viable business model. Um, and it's it's more just um, kind of ignorance and, and just kind of a lack of caring about what's happening that's, that's allowing that to happen. Thanks. Um, I think this is going to be a quick question um, that someone asked. Um, what would you say is the big um, learning or big difference from Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016 that some of you have worked on until today when tackling disinformation? Well, I, I, you know, I'll say it, it's the, the scale of resources available to us, I think, is, is, is a big one. Um, you know, we had social listening tools in, in 2016, but I, I don't think an ecosystem had been stood up to figure out what to do with it. Um, and, you know, Tim and, and the DNC sort of built a program that was really, really good at saying, okay, we have, we have our finger on the pulse of what's bubbling up, but then we're going we're gonna to engage with platforms um, to, actually, to actually do something about it. Um, and, uh, and and so I, I think it's it's the fact that there is there's just more of an ecosystem of understanding and, and action I think is 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 the biggest difference and then obviously you add on top the tools that that the campaign is able to sort of add to Tim's program uh, and the DNC's program um, as as we scaled up I think that sort of made the difference um, you know I, I I still think we have substantive problems I still think this is that we have a long way to go when it comes to to tackling the issue. Um, but, um, yeah, it's just that there, there, there is more in place, uh, and there is, um, you know, more, more avenues. I mean, um, you know, I remember when we were in 2016 flagging that like people on 4chan were posting, um, the wrong election date on, you know, 
Facebook pages that have huge, you know, or, or you know, the wrong election date, some of the wrong election date was being targeted at, at the Black community. Um, you know, we went to Facebook and would say there's a problem here. Uh, and they, um, you know, in 2016, they said there's not a policy violation. Now in, in 2016, there's a whole team uh, at, at a pretty junior level. Now in, in, in 2020, there was a, a, a pretty robust team that was constantly interfacing with them. Um, so I, I, I think I think th those differences are, are pretty stark in terms of the resources that were available. Thank you. Um, there's another question from Arj Singh from HuffPost UK. Uh, do you think there is any red cross, uh, read, cross uh, read across from what you guys did in the election campaign to the fight in tackling anti-vax disinformation? And do you think governments and social media companies are doing enough in this space in relation to any potential COVID vaccine? How bad is the problem? What should they be doing, etc.? Cheers. I can jump in here. I think um, the, the model we've built here is applicable to any major industry or, or body of disinformation. Um, Anti-vax narratives seems like a very applicable parallel here. Um, the, the core of our, our strategy is to track the, the disinformation that's catching hold and understand the audiences that are impacted for vaccines in particular, um, obviously has real world um, outcomes and that someone might choose to get a vaccine or not based on um, based on the, the disinformation that they're exposed to. Um, so think it's a worthy and critically important investment, especially where we are in the world right now, um, to study um, the impacts of that and, and for governments and organizations to set up um, countermeasures wherever possible um, to and and again on the countermeasures piece here um, getting accurate information in front of folks will likely do a world of difference in in them making up their minds thank you um, there's a question from Sarwa uh, who is a behavioral change consultant um, and a Muslim and female and she's wondering um, in terms of the research of varied demographies, what do you what did you do to ensure trust from example the Muslim community, but also has been questioned about different demographics. How do you ensure trust when uh, when doing your um, digital campaigning? Is the question sorry? Do you mind repeating the question? Is it yeah. how do we target specific demographics? Yeah, and ensure that uh, you have the trust from them as well. Or how did you do it during this campaign? Yeah, um, so we stood up two different targeting techniques. The first was just directly targeting people who had recently been exposed to disinformation. That was demographic agnostic, um, and we really saw as sort of a treatment campaign. The second was demographic targeted insofar as we built out different um, personas for the different um, parts of our key audiences, both persuadable and our um, supporters. Um, and then targeted them with custom campaigns based on the narratives that they were exposed to. Um, we were lucky enough to be able to implement um, a pretty robust measurement um, measurement tool against that. So um, over the course of our ad campaign at the demographic level, we were looking at how people's attitudes towards um, the different attributes we were tracking against the um, candidates changed as well as their ultimate vote choice. 
Um, so we were we were pretty honed in um, and thinking about the campaign sort of on the demographic level and, and about who the cohorts are that that we needed in order to win. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just piggyback on that. Um, in addition to the paid, um, you know, I think from a philosophical um, level, you know, I think the, the Biden campaign was very, um, you know, they made diversity a priority, um, you know, from the beginning. And so, you know, staffing the campaign with a diverse set of voices um, all the way to, you know, you know, finding surrogates who supported the campaign to kind of speak to uh, specific communities, um, you know, people who looked like the, the communities they were trying to communicate with, um, you know, uh, the DNC had a, a, an initiative um, starting, I think, in 2019 called Seat at the Table that really uh, reached out to traditionally um, marginalized and, and underrepresented groups um, in the country. Um, and so I think like, you know, in addition to kind of the really tactical stuff that Becca was talking about, I think, you know, there's a philosophical approach from the get-go that, you know, we wanted to be abroad and just kind of in our, our, our DNA and the, on the democratic side, like we are a, a diverse, broad, uh, big tent party um, and we want everyone represented and, and kind of that was um, key to kind of everything the campaign did and, and definitely paid dividends um, as you know specific groups were, were targeted with this information. Thank you. Uh, we had some questions come in as well before earlier and uh, this is more a question about uh, non-US uh, state actors and tackling disinformation. So was all the disinformation generated internally or was there uh, some from other nation states? And if so, which states were they and what was their general focus? Another question is um, the role of non-US social media accounts and posing as Americans and spreading disinformation. I think we have a similar uh, phenomenon in the UK as well. Uh, would it be possible or effective um, for social media platform to show which countries an account is posting from as well? This question comes from Alad and Duncan. Yeah, um, really good questions. Um, so I would say one of the areas where um, I think the whole country and, and the West generally really focused after um, Brexit in, in 2016 was around foreign interference. Um, and so, you know, both, uh, or actually I should say all um, social media companies themselves, civil society, uh, government, um, all kind of focused in this area of foreign, especially state, um, state disinformation. Um, and influence uh, operations. Um, that certainly, I think, is an area of success. Um, you know, we saw um, folks who were affiliated with the Russian Internet Research Agency having to, like, hire Americans to write, like, humans to write content for them that they would then push across um, social media. And so like we're at a, a much higher level of investment from from bad actors, foreign bad actors, where they they can't just create groups and start memeing and start dividing the country. They actually had to like spend money and reach out to humans and connect with them and encourage them and pay them to write things that were favorable to them. And even those efforts were shut down really quickly. Um, and so I think uh, in terms of the foreign interference, um, we can be pretty happy, um, at least a foreign state interference, we can be pretty happy with with how everyone kind of came together on that. Um, that being said, there is 
definitely an underbelly of like scam content and like content farms um, that is foreign. Um, it's not necessarily politically motivated. Um, these are folks who are just kind of trying to make money online. And what they've generally found is that talking about um, American politics tends to make them more money than talking about, you know, motorcycles or whatever they were going to talk about before that. Um, and so there, there was quite a bit of that, um, uh, more like spam content, honestly, but has the same political effect. Um, and so that type of content what is still fairly prevalent and is one of the things that, that we focused on um, at the DNC. Um, sorry, there were a lot of pieces to that question, but um, if I missed anything, uh, let me know. I think that was great. Um, going back a little bit to platforms again, um, there's two questions. Uh, first of all, there, do you think the steps that Facebook took in stopping new political ads being submitted the week before the election had any impact on the spread of misinformation? And another one is, uh, what is um, platforms financial in incentive for fixing misinformation, especially if uh, competing parties will pay to hyper target ads? Um, let me try to channel, I think, um, some of the, some of the concern. Um, so, um, it's actually a quite a, quite a long story about how that, that last week, um, came about. Um, basically, I think, I think many people on our side in the U.S. think that, um, we can have political advertising on social media and we can also, um, not allow disinformation in social media advertising that that's a fairly uh non-controversial non um desire um certain social media companies um you know facebook among um probably more among uh, any of them um didn't necessarily want to do that um especially as it came to political candidates themselves uh and so they came up with this um kind of exemption for politicians and then um you know saying that there's scrutiny uh public scrutiny that content and and rebuttals and and fact checks presented somewhere else um you know these are targeted digital ads so i it doesn't really make sense what they were doing but um that's kind of how they presented it and so uh this last week was supposed to allow them to have public scrutiny of of lies in digital ads um what we found was um, one that it broke the advertising platform in, in the last week of the election, which was um, really problematic for us getting our uh, get out the vote messages um, and and some of our fundraising messages and some of our like closing message uh, closing argument messaging. Um, so that was um, a pretty big failure. And then we also didn't see the scrutiny um, that that was you know kind of the goal of of that week-long um blackout or on on new ads at least so um overall i think that was um pretty uh, disastrous um policy thank you um there are some questions about uh local versus national um uh, versus kind of like the senate way like the house where this information tactics and uh, uh, i mean the campaign that you were doing uh targeted differently depending on what kind of election there was. So I think a little bit of both. Um, I think certainly the, the, the presidential election was the one that got the most attention, um, but we certainly saw disinformation targeted at down ballot candidates, some of it echoing the, the same lines as, as what was happening at the top of the ticket and some of it more 
uh, race specific. Um, we, you know, the 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 down ballot. So 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 the senatorial and the house campaigns were also very cognizant of this problem and invested in um, detection and, and remediation. Um, and so it's it's certainly not just something for you know large national campaigns. Um, it's it's definitely something that um, you know everyone needs to be aware of. Um, unfortunately, like campaigns like that, and, and I'm sure this is true in the UK, don't have the resources really to, to do what we were able to do. Like we had, I don't know how many millions of dollars to be able to, to do, uh, do what we did. Um, whereas, you know, these smaller campaigns don't have the resources to do that and anything that they're, they're doing to um, remediate against disinformation is money that's not being spent, you know, turning out their voters um, in, you know, small, Elections, so uh, I think it's it's really challenging um, for for smaller campaigns um, to do this type of stuff, um, and yeah, it's 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 hard. Um, I think you know one of the things that we tried to do at the DNC as kind of the national committee was to try to um, provide that support kind of across the spectrum to the extent that we could. Thank you. I guess this is a question for everyone. Um, probably a little bit personal one. I mean, Susie is asking, as a social media manager, I often have to deal with angry messages and false information, which can be quite challenging to read and manage. Uh, where Were there any times where you find it really hard to deal with this information on a personal level? And if so, did you have any strategies to protect your own well-being? And I think there's a lot of like um, uh, social media and comms people in this call who probably love to hear about this and then there's also someone who asked if you have slept uh, since uh, the campaign ended I, i'll start and, and then becca and tim should sort of finish i mean I, you know i i will say we were pretty intentional because not even about misinformation i mean when you are a social media manager you're exposed to everything right when you're running um, the accounts you see all the comments about everything the best and the worst um and uh you know i think we certainly were cognizant of the fact that um, a lot of our social staff sort of took it on board, you know, they, they, they were sort of on the front lines. And so we were really intentional about um, making sure that the staff who were running the social accounts were taking days off, which like is a thing that you don't do on campaigns, but um, we, were, we, were, we were pretty intentional about, or at least have time to sort of step away because I think to the point of the question, um, you know, it is, it is a bit of a, a mental health drain. Um, when you're doing this stuff. So we were, um, you know, we, we sort of almost as a work thing made people who are exposed to it um, sort of step back. You know, I've, I've seen the stress from a number of the folks that we had in 2016 who were monitoring this stuff and, and sort of what it does to them. So sort of curious to hear uh, uh, Tim and Becca's thoughts about, you know, how to manage through, uh, manage through that. Yeah, just at a macro level, we were we were lucky enough to be able to really closely track the impact of our programs. And I think um, obviously managing the stress of that on the day to day is is a terribly difficult thing. But um, taking solace and knowing that the work you do and, and getting accurate information out there really makes a difference. And in our case, we were able to see that in a tangible way. Um, that's it's quite helpful to me and, and was a nice takeaway from this experience in this program. Have you guys slept since? How much did you sleep? <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, well, I don't know if I want to answer that one. <laughs> I haven't slept as much as I would like to. Um, um, 
I, I got a couple of nights in, but, uh, but, but, uh, you know, I think there's a thing and, and you guys probably experience this too, if you're a campaigner is, is, you know, there's the adrenaline rush of the run up to election day. And then, uh, and then like the election ends and you're just like tired. Uh, <laughs> and it all sort of hits you. I like, I, I get this a lot. I don't know if, if, if other folks do, but, um, I always get a cold like a week out from, from election day, which definitely hit me and like getting a cold right now is like, Oh my God. <laughs> um, so, uh, certainly, uh, coping through that, but I'm feeling good. Thank you. Just a, a bit of a derail before going back into some other questions. Uh, Daniel is wondering um, if you could talk about which groups are especially vulnerable to disinformation and what kind of disinformation. And did you find different groups vulnerable to different yeah, strategies of disinformation? Yeah, certainly true. Um, th this is likely something that's incredibly race and topic dependent in our case. Um, we found that the types of folks impacted by disinformation depended on what the narrative was. Um, something we did find, which was interesting, was um, in Florida where there seemed to be a lot of concerted um, outside interference and, and um, disinformation efforts um, targeted against the Latinx community, those, those folks were um, showing real impact in, in terms of their attitudes towards our candidates and their their vote choice. Um, and then across the our sort of target states, um, we found that older people were particularly susceptible to one-off hits. Um, and then across the board, really, it was pretty dependent on um, what what the what the narrative was and sort of what fears and um, the like it was playing into. Thank you. I know we're running out of time, so I'm going to take three more questions and then we're going to wrap it up. I'm so sorry if we haven't been able to answer all your questions. Just remember, we have two more webinars coming up in this webinar series. Uh, the next one is going to be on Monday, where we're going to talk more about COVID and the pandemic and organizing during the pandemic. So if you have any questions about that, leave it to then uh, and then you will be able to uh, ask more questions. Uh, so there's the questions about what role does traditional media and media relations play in conjunction with digital campaigning during such a hard fought campaign and how long in advance do your teams come together in, in advance of the campaign launching? This is from Nick Ryan. So the question is just like, how long are people planning for campaigns and, and how, how quickly people come together for, for launching them? And what's the difference between traditional media and like digitalized media or digital organizing? Yeah, oof. Um, the the second part of the question is is a is a doctoral thesis, but uh, but the first one I think um, you know the planning for a campaign for a lot of these 2020 campaigns started um, pretty much after the 2018 midterms. Um, people were were getting hired up. Um, you know, I think the first campaign that launched in the 2020 cycle was Warren, and she went on um, New Year's Eve of 2018, I think. Uh, and, and then people kind of started kind of jumping out from there. Um, the vice president didn't get in until, uh, until April, as I recall, um, or sorry, the president elect. Oh my gosh. Uh, so not used to that. Um, so, you know, the planning for that stuff is, I mean, happens over the course of years, right? Um, the candidate is, 
is um, thinking about it, their advisors are, are feeling out advisors. There were recruitment calls about um, the 2020 election going on in 2017. Um, so, you know, that process begins in earnest a while back. People generally start joining the staff of a presidential campaign, like, like at like at scale, um, uh, like a couple of weeks out. There's a I'm forgetting. There's a um, uh, there's a finite window between the amount of time that um, you start paying people and when you file with the FEC. But you can start an exploratory committee. So there's just all kinds of like weird campaign finance laws in the U.S. that 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 lead to it. So you know I would say usually people start being fully on staff within a month of of actually launching in like. A semi-secret state of like open open secretness, um, and then the second question about what the difference between traditional and and um, and, and like non-traditional media or digital media. I mean, I think I think the the, the biggest like substantive difference is is the difference between a broadcast model and a network model, right? Um, so this idea that um, the sort of traditional media approach. Um, uh, it says, you know, we are an entity who will be broadcasting a message either through paid or, or through earned um, through a limited number of outlets that have sort of a, a, a um, you know, rigorous journalistic standards. Um, and the, the sort of digital media model is, is, is more driven by, um, you know, anybody and everybody being able to communicate uh, about anything in, in sort of public forums. And to Tim's point about the New York Times and, and sort of Mad World News appearing Together, I mean, that's just that's just like fake news sites. That's that is nothing. That is that's not even counting people who have large followings and are just humans, right? Um, I think the substantive difference is um, grappling with a world where um, where anyone can anyone can amass a platform and say anything, uh, and um, and um, and and those forces um, having real impact on public perception. Um, and, um, you know, those forces, uh, uh, you know, really driving public opinion in a way that may not seem intuitive to your understanding of a media landscape. Um, and so I think it's led to a system where there are multiple understandings of the world and multiple understandings of the facts that are around the world. And, and so communicating in that environment in this sort of diff in this digital environment, uh, it ends up just being sort of substantively different and strategically different than communicating in, in a more traditional landscape. I don't know if Tim or Becca have yeah I'll, I'll jump in on that so I, I, first I just say that I think the calendar that um, this is just a personal opinion but the calendar that Rob laid out of you know the never-ending campaign is, is definitely not a sign of like a healthy um, democratic process um, we are <laughs> I personally am very jealous of European countries with with uh, rational you know campaign finance laws that don't force um, endless campaigns. Um, and then um, in terms of the professional media, as it comes to, you know, disinformation, um, I think they have learned some uh, since 2016. Um, the, the goal of like bad actors and disinformation sources is, is to push their ideas across social media and get it into professional media. We're talking about breaking through and what what reaches swing voters before like you know mainstream or in the u.s we call it like mainstream media professional media repeating you know false attacks on our candidate is the goal of you know disinformation right if they can get their lies in front of a, a broadcast audience like that is a huge win for them so um fortunately i think we did see a bit more 
um, discipline from professional media this time around. Um, if we compare, you know, the the Clinton email story to some of the the Hunter Biden stuff that happened in 2020, you could see, you know, this time around, professional journalists were saying, "Wait a minute, we don't know what this is. You know, what is the relative importance of this? Um, is this a, a campaign defining story in the in the last week? Um, actually, no." Um, and kind of change their behavior based on that. So, so I don't think we can discount the um, the importance of kind of um, journalists and, and editors kind of understanding how they are being targeted um, with this information and how how bad actors are hoping to kind of leverage their audiences to to push their ideas. Thank you. I'm going to move on to the final question because I know we've kind of run over time a bit, and this is. A a question for everyone in the panel, and it's more specific on uh, the panelists' thoughts on, for example, Parler um, as a, a potential powerful tool for disinformation and mobilizing the far right, and how do we actually kind of, I mean, manage that? Um, what is it that um, campaigners, what is it that uh, us working with these can do to kind of um, stop this mobilization? Is, are there other threats other than Parler? Uh, that can become a potential threat into disinformation and mobilizing uh, the far right. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I think in, in terms of right wing mobilization, I, I think it is something to be concerned about. Um, you know, it's the it's a place where folks are going to be able to organize freely and without, you know, any not any, but um, many of the kind of guardrails that some of the the more developed social media companies have. Um, I, it's going to be curious to see where that goes. I think there's a couple of problems with Parler. One is it's not a good technology product. It's really hard to use. Um, second is like, if there's no one to troll, will trolls use it? Um, and then I think the third is, um, it's hard to see a viable business model there. Um, I can't see advertisers kind of flocking to that product and, and, you know, it, it's backed by the Mercer family. So, you know, they could theoretically run it forever um, and just, you know, spend their money on it. But um, it, you know, I, I have a hard time believing it's going to be a viable kind of long-term place um, for, for folks to organize. But so, but, you know, I think that remains to be seen. I think my perspective here is um, a question of how it scales and, and to which audiences. Um, I think as it becomes, and if it becomes more mainstream, um, it, it becomes a greater concern and sort of pushing disinformation and making it pervasive um, among the electorate at large. Um, and, and that is to be seen. Thank you so much. Um, I think that's the end of our time. If anyone doesn't want to have like a final word, a word, word of encouragement, um, I just want to say um, thank you so much for coming to our um, to our webinar. Um, is there any final words, Joe, Rob, Timothy, or Becca, that you want to share? Thank you so much, guys. Uh, if for everyone who's joining, our supporters, our members uh, to the panel, uh, I've posted a little link um, for our support. Um, please come, uh, please donate to us. Obviously, with the pandemic, we're also struggling, um, and we want to keep our work going. So, uh, if you want to join um, our Hope Action Fund, where we can do our, this research, please do so. Our intelligent work, and we 
of course, this is the first uh, first one of our webinar series. The next one will be on Monday, same time, uh, and that will be on organizing during the pandemic, um, during the Biden campaign. So please come and join then. Uh, we will send out a new link for everyone who joined today. Um, so yeah, again, thank you so much for all our um, for all our members, campaigners, and everyone out there. Uh, and I'm going to end this uh, now, otherwise it becomes really awkward. This is filmed and we'll be going to our members. Thank you, everyone. Bye.